really when we reflect on things, we're a stronger, more capable service as a result of the experiences that we, we had during that really challenging time. We've all learnt things and we've applied them and that's probably one of the takeaways that you do get through these times. I mean, we sat back and were scratching our heads and, um, and becoming quite concerned about how an essential service was going to continue, but collectively you, you do get through it. Althea Projects is a vital service within the Townsville community, providing those in need with social assistance, food and fostering services. The last two years have seen the organisation suffer setbacks and the need to adjust to continue supporting the community through COVID. In this episode, Althea Projects CEO Paula LaRosa and WeCare Manager Lynn Josie tell how they have weathered the storms. This episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Bindal and Woolgarugaba people. We acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of this country. So we're joined today with Paula LaRosa, the CEO of Althea Projects, and Lynn, our Program Manager for Althea WeCare. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. It's great to be here. So... I wanted to talk about what services Althea offers. So we've got um, a range of services from the child protection, fostering services, um, homelessness services, and then our residential for children, zero to 11. People will know us from our fostering kinship program, which used to be called Shared Family Care. So that kind of speaks for itself, where we um, recruit and and support and train um, foster carers and then placement match children who are in need of of care and protection where child safety are involved. And then we've got WeCare, which has a long history in in our community. And that's focused on zero to 11 year old uh, residential service. Um, So looking after children with families before, um, it's really to try to keep families together. So children come in for emergency um, care, respite. um, And so the families, the parents, or carers um, can deal with the crisis that's happening in their life at any given time. So really trying to keep families together. And then we've got our um, homelessness service, which is at the drop-in centre. Um, Althea has been running that now since 2017. So its history is before before us, but now um, we're moving it into, um, into our future around um, centre-based and mobile support services. Um, for people who are homeless, at risk of homeless, socially isolated and vulnerable in a range of services from coming into the centre, getting bathroom facilities, meals, um, and then mobile support services. So getting tenancies and supporting people with tenancies and helping them um, sustain those um, when there have, have there's some issues that would sometimes be um, impacting on them generally to, to, to have, have a roof over their head, which everyone um, really deserves and, and needs. Do you have any other stakeholders that support the um, Homeless Hub? Absolutely. So the whole um, focus of the centre um, is to bring in other services. So we have the services like TARS, Red Cross, Anglicare, um, coming in and delivering health services and other kind of first point of contact for people who are homeless or at risk of homeless, trying to help people find all their identification and what they need to actually engage in with the housing department. Housing is, 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 comes in and also um, links in with people who, who, who we can support. So it is kind of a little community hub there 
that um, navigates a whole service system for for people, you know, because it's a very complex, especially when you've got vulnerabilities and social isolation. It's a, it's a tough job. It can feel beyond what you're capable of. So we bring people together to try to link them up with the supports that they need to kind of move forward. So you said it's moved into a mobile service. Has that been on the back end of COVID from last year? We've been advocating for mobile supports or, or enhancing the work that we were doing as a centre-based service for a number of years. It did come to he- come together last year, so we were recruiting during COVID, which was an interesting time. But that that that's just really part of the full spectrum of um, homelessness work that we do in the community. So um, it didn't evolve specifically from COVID, but I think... Um, the whole impact on people who are homeless during the COVID um, health crisis, especially in the early days for Townsville, and it was really unknown how it was going to impact. There was a lot of work that went into what is that um, sector, what do we need to do as a whole service system to ensure that people were well cared for during a very difficult and unknown time when we're talking about 12 months before now when, when we didn't know what we do now. So, um, yes, probably that was a motivator, but, you know... Um, we we had very very limited resources up until that point. So so what did that look like last year during COVID when the people you're supporting, like you said, are vulnerable, and all of a sudden a service that gets delivered face to face and it's important that it's face to face has to stop. Yeah. How do you pivot from that? I think when COVID came, um, I. Um, I, I use the example that we had a business continuity plan that we rewrote five times before we had anything that was of any real value to work through a crisis like this pandemic. And for the drop-in centre, um, we had to, well, with all of our services, we just flipped everything over. So what we did at the centre is, you know, we couldn't have people walking through the door. Food is a, um, a really key element of that service. We, we can't deal with our crises and, and, and think about how to navigate very complex service systems if we're deprived of, of, of basic human needs. So we started to deliver food outside. So we basically brought the service outside or into the community. People could still come in and use bathrooms and laundry. Um, The hardest thing to get our head around is that we turned a centre-based meal service into a takeaway service and that we flipped that over within days. Um, And we we have that more expertise now because we haven't even talked about our social enterprise that that came into effect at that time. Um, And that that was definitely a COVID-focused response to dealing with people who were highly vulnerable. And we did get some government to support to be able to do that. So then we could bring meals into the community um, when, you know, people were getting fearful to leave the home. We we deal with elderly people as well. And there was a great fear um, in the early time where people didn't want to leave leave the home. So we ensured that we brought food into them in conversation and support so then we could still um, engage and tap into them and ensure that they were okay. And then if, if they weren't, um, have that conversation and then tap in services that they might need to ensure that they felt that they were getting everything that they needed to to, um, to just keep on going day by day. Mm. With your services that were coming in, also providing service in the Homeless Hub, 
How hard was that getting them to come back in and engage face to face? Um, not not too bad. In, in uh, 99%, not, not too bad. Um, some services that were bigger than a local place-based service that, that were having to follow guidelines and regulations that was coming out of maybe head office that could have been in New South Wales or, or even in Brisbane at times, that was a bit, took a bit slower because they had to fight, um, follow their national state. guidelines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it wasn't just a, a local local approach. So look, I suppose it was sta- staggered when I come and reflect on it. We've got most of them back, and really, when we reflect on things, and we had that extra funding as well, we're a stronger, more capable service as a result of the experiences that we we had during that really challenging time. So, and and all of those services, I think, are stronger and more capable. Um, because we've all learnt things and we've applied them and that's probably one of the takeaways that you do get through these times. I mean, we sat back and were scratching our heads and um, and becoming quite concerned about how an essential service was going to continue. Um, but collectively, you, you do get through it. Because you're right, you were an essential service and where everyone was put into lockdown bar essential services... Mm. Well, you don't even stop and think about how different um, things like COVID affects the system or, you know, or affects families. But yeah, something like COVID from recruiting carers, I mean, we're always in, in you know, foster carers are critically important in our community and um, our role to continue to identify and assess um, more carers, that, that doesn't stop. You know, the, the requirement continues. And when, when something like COVID happens... It changes how people see what they can do because it makes them feel vulnerable. You know, the unknown. Some COVID has taught us that we really don't know what's around the corner. I'm a fully functioning um, family ha- household, but now I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I, I don't know if my job's going to be still there um, or how, how, you know, health crises are going to affect us. So, yep, we, we will still foster or we will um, put our hand up to be assessed as a foster family. But people are more cautious about um, the number of children that they're feeling comfortable to 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 um, care for. Whilst before they might have thought, "Yep, you know, we've got a um, a house can got five bedrooms, so we can take maybe three children. Um, We have teenagers. Yeah, that that could fit." Now it's like, "We'll take one. We'll we'll do one. We'll commit to one." So instead of maybe needing, say, 50 families, and that's that we've got over 100 families, but just say it is 100 families, to meet need, we might now need 150 because everyone... And we fully respect that, you know? People can do what, what people can do, and every little bit is so important for changing lives. So, so yeah, COVID, um, COVID's been a real pain in the neck. We, we've learned a lot and evolved... Um, from that and, and in many respects wiser we don't want to discount that but um, it, it, it the journey's been tough for foster carers because there was a lot of marketing during mm. COVID mm. for recruiting or for you know trying to get more foster carers to come on board um, so what was that like here in Townsville? Were you able to get more foster carers to come on board and understand the importance of mm. what they could contribute? This community is amazing. It's a very caring community and the willingness and expressions of interest is what our term for it um, hasn't slowed down or stopped. Um, It's just 
the pressures on, on say, a service to keep up with that um, when, you know, to use um, figures that might make sense, you know, if you had 10, ten you might have been able to care for 50 children. 10 now might care for 10 children. It's, it's those sort of things. So at no point did we actually feel the interest of being a carer reduce. Um, I've always maintained this community, there are people wanting or con cons consistently wanting to be carers. It's, what, it's how that looked for them to be a carer is what changed. So we'll, take, we'll, we'll care for one child or one sibling group, or it might have been multiple sibling groups if something like COVID hadn't come along to um, make them feel a bit more vulnerable as, 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 a, as a system, as their family system. And so it's that, it's that sort of impact. So, um, we, we, you know, I don't, it's not dire straits. Of, we, need, we need people to consistently think about if they can, if, if that's something that they've ever thought of doing, please contact us, Churches of Christ, Life Without Barriers, TARS, that are, that are other foster and kinship care services in our community, um, and let us know that of their interest, and we'll be very excited and motivated to work with them to see if that is something that they want to follow through on. So did you find the, the increase in workload that came in? We found actually it during the real peak of the crisis, it actually um, calmed down quieted, a bit. It quietened down. Um, which was great. We were yeah. kind of grateful yeah. for, it, for a bit of that, for some of our services, right? Um, say the homelessness service and some of our ERF that happens from, from we care. So um, we had to apply different um, approaches for t two of the services. Working from home wasn't an option as an essential service. So I grappled with that. It's a face-to-face -face delivery. Correct. And, and can I say I grappled with that. I had enormous guilt with... Two, two services, the doors needed to remain open and it was our job to work out how to make that happen. And then we had one service that could very much work from home under the circumstances. Um, I mean, we were walking out. We now have laptops and much more mobile service. Um, but at the time, we were taking desktops home and monitors home and doing all sorts of things. But we could continue to do, to do that work. Um, so, yeah, that, that took a little while to... probably took me... Six weeks, I think we worked from home. I think it took me the first four weeks to kind of cope with that and know that the, the services that were open, we had a good system and all, all, all was going to be okay there. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it certainly wasn't straightforward in our circumstance. You know, if we just had one service, then you'd, you'd, put, you'd, you'd put a plan in place and you'd deal with it. So, yeah, essential services that had to keep going during this time were really challenged and I know a lot of people that I spoke to, I don't know if they wrote five continuity plans, but for most of us, what we originally had for the flu season, where you know you, you, you put things in place to ensure that we don't all contaminate the office, um, just didn't, didn't work. So for, for TDIC, they kept the door open, we care. Well, that's another story. Yeah, so what, how did we care go through COVID then and lockdown? Because you're supporting vulnerable families coming into your service. Well, we continued on as usual. I mean, we just had COVID plans in place and hygiene practices and um, we had more staff available because no one was off sick with the flu. 
do you think the staff kind of stepped up to the plate in that moment because they kind of realised jobs were important in that definitely, time? Definitely, definitely. And that really, we saw that make a difference to, to, to supporting the families that we work with. Now, WeCare's story, you know, is it was 100% inundated um, from the floods um, and then um, we, we, we recovered from that and then we, we, we then moved Jumped into, into COVID. To, to COVID. So um, w- w- the big issue that we found from WeCare was our staffing group were in a vulnerable um, health category. And they were all in the group, like majority. The majority of them were. Which that would have been challenging yes. as well. Yeah. So, so if we mention the floods, let's go to the floods and talk about the floods. Um, we care was hit pretty hard through the floods, and at that time, Lynn, you were the acting CEO. Yes, that's right. So chucked in the deep end. I was chucked in the deep end, <laughs> and um. What did you do? What so, you acting CEO, and the floods hit. Well, luckily we had a great committee. We had great staff, and the other staff and the committee got together and took took control of it. So they they um, got volunteers and got lots of community support, and everybody got in and cleaned up, which I wasn't able to help because I was um, personally flooded. So. Yourself. So what? So the We Care House, residential yeah. house, was flooded. Yeah. And how flooded? How had water the white right water, the way through it? Yeah, water would have gone through probably about oh, one and a half feet. So everything inside was lost. Yeah, and fl- and moved. Everything just moved. You know, it was and mould, and it's melted, and it had the black black water. Yep. The sewage had gone through. It was terrible. What did that look like in that moment, walking in to see that, but you also know that your own house is inundated? Yeah. It's pretty devastating, actually, yeah. Could you envision what the next steps were going to be? Well, with, with We Care, I could, because I knew that we had the, the great backup of the committee and the staff and the community. That, so they, they took control of that, which enabled me to go back to my house and look after what I had to do at my house. I think that that was when I came in just at that time um you know I was um it it was it was very challenging you know to hear that people that I didn't know yet had been personally impacted themselves um it was all about getting we care back open um the committee were amazing they 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 did they did become a very operational committee under the circumstances of um, I was still weeks away. I, I was fortunate that I was in a position where I could come come in, but it was it was um, it was there was it was full on for for those first I think five six weeks after the flood. It was 20, 2019 was a, was was crisis for for the organisation from from floods and we get through that and we open again. And how long did it take for WeCare to rebuild before? Because um, you had to move out and find yeah, another we house. Rented another you? house in Aikenvale, and I think we took ten months. Nine months before, nine months yeah. before we were back in. But in saying that, we also, I think, we were amazing that we were able to in the rental property. We were up and going within a week. And again, the community, you know, people dropping off beds. So we had beds for children. We had cleaning products by companies dropping off cleaning products. There was just so much community support. I think that's the only way that that under those circumstances, 
we could get the doors back open again. Mm-hmm. I, I always talk about it as a, at a time when the community needed us the most, we were unable for a period of time to help. That wasn't a good feeling that any of us were carrying and doing the best that we can to, to flip it around. But only through this community, who I think has r- rallied together as a community, like Lynn said, you know, we had enough, people just dropped, what, what, what do you need? We just needed, I think, um, the, the president jumped on the, the radio and um, put a call out and there were beds turning up. There was linen, there was towels. Things that we was... needed, we had to set up a new bed. Um, the, the, the challenge was trying to work through planning regulations and understanding where a, um, a, a service like ours could, could go in the community. And there was, um, I think because the whole, we, we needed local government, state government to come together and, and, and navigate us through that. Um, and we didn't know because it hadn't happened for us before. So we were also trying to learn what was going to be okay. And then um, it just all, all then started to come together. But it, you know, it took, um, it, it just took a lot of coordinating and goodwill from a, a range of, of services and, and government bodies and, and the staff goodwill to, to keep moving forward that we could get through in that short t- turnaround. Lynn, with We Care, have you seen then over the years a shift in the types of families that you have coming through your doors or the demographics of families coming through your doors? Yeah, so we're probably seeing more homeless, more, more families that are homeless now. I think that would be the biggest change over the last year or two. With young children? With young children, yeah, and sleeping in cars. You know, they've got no... They, they've, they can't find... A, they can't afford to pay accommodation and there's no government housing. What do you do in that moment for these families? Because while you can provide um, some respite care for these children in that moment, it's not a solution for them, is it? There isn't. So. There's, there's, there isn't. But we've got other organisations like Feet and, and other places that we engage with. But we're fortunate also that we do have um, federal funding for ERF financial assistance. So we we might be able to put the family into a motel for a week rather than sleeping in their car. You know that sort of thing. That, that's what's amazing about a service like We Care. It, it's it it's really there for anybody, and and to see the change in demographic when crises like this happen, um, of who accesses the service, you know, it's not just for what people think maybe the traditional um, family in crisis that might have domestic violence issues or mental health issues, substance abuse. It's really for everyone, and we see a range of people coming in, you know, for the grandparents that are raising their grandchildren, you know, just new to town, um, pregnancy, you know, family were coming at a particular time when the baby was due, the baby comes early, um, no one there to look after mm-hmm. the children. So it's it's really, um, it's open for anyone and everyone, and we do see a changing kind of um landscape of the of, of people who, who need services like these so and also Paula just not just mentioned was the grandparents you know these days we're seeing a, a lot um, a big increase in grandparents rearing grandchildren and sometimes these are people who haven't even heard of these services and they don't need these services until they need them um, and it's important for people to know about um, the services that you provide in our community yeah I think um, things like the flood and and COVID, these things that just come out of really left field. Where you know, it's I think the people who haven't needed to access social supports um, have found it incredibly, incredibly difficult and cha- challenging. To you know, I've spoken to many people and they've left it to 
to, to the last minute before they would even consider going to Centrelink, say, or to access any of those supports because they, it's, it's an, they don't even think that they would be entitled to it and, and, and they most certainly were. Um, and we, did, we weren't seeing or hearing about those people. They were just looking after themselves with the door closed and until it became impossible for that to, to continue. Which and is a lot of these people struggle with asking for assistance mm-hmm. because they never have had to, and they, they often they're embarrassed or you know they don't feel comfortable having to ask for assistance, but we're there for everybody. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us. It's, it's great talking about um, kind of what you go through in those, those challenging times and how you get through to the other side. And um, we, can't, we can't control what, what's out there, but um, knowing that what we, we're capable of doing now as a service is, is, is the, the, what, what we've got to kind of focus on. Mm. So thank, thanks for that opportunity and my thanks to, to Lynn for coming in and, and doing this with me. I thought that was important, you know, from... Thank you for Yeah, you were very me. pivotal in a very crucial moment for the organisation mm. and you did very well. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.